Okay, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Everybody's Bible open. Love to see your eyes on Scripture. If you have a tablet or smartphone, that's great too. Uh, you want to pull your outline out there. There's some things. We're going to get kind of deep today on some things that I hope will really help you, but you're going to have to listen, take some notes, and walk with me through this as we look at the temptation of Jesus. Now, a few things about temptation that we all know. First of all, we know what it's like to be tempted, every one of us. We know what it's like to stand up under it or to fall down because of it. Uh, we've all fallen to temptation. Uh, Americans have said that the three top temptations that they face, this was a recent poll, uh, number one, overeating. That's Americans, number one. Number two, uh, laziness or procrastination. Number three, worry or anxiety. Now you would have thought there would have been more visceral temptations in there. Those fall into the list, but they're a little bit further down. The common temptations that we face most of the time are things as simple as that. Do I eat that or do I say no? <laughs> you know, uh, or to be tempted to do the right thing and not do it. You know, or, or to, I shouldn't say it that way. To, do, to be com uh, give the opportunity to do the right thing, but then tempted to not do it. Those are things that we face every day or we have a subtle temptation of something that we shouldn't do and then we, we cave in. We all know what it's like to be tempted. Another thing we know is that God doesn't tempt anyone, right? James 1, read it out loud with me. James 1, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That's a great promise. So if you're ever in temptation, you can know that God's not messing with you. God's not playing some cosmic joke on you. God does not do that. He does not tempt us. We also know along with that that no temptation experience that we have is totally unique to us. Now that's the way it feels like. Nobody's going through what I'm going through. Nobody has this unique temptation with its addiction or whatever little strands that it has. Uh, we all feel like we're the only ones, but God tells us in his word that we're not the only ones. In fact, let's read this one out loud, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Ready, here we go. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. So, it, and if you have your own Bibles sometime, you need to just take that verse and you need to underline the word no. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Everything you face in life as a temptation has somebody else and countless scores of people have already been through. And here's how great God is. God promises a way out of temptation. So we know that all of us, we know what it's like to be tempted. We know that God doesn't tempt anyone, that he provides a way. And here's what Matthew wants to show us this morning in Matthew chapter four, which by the way is still introducing the Messiah to his Jewish friends. Uh, the first four chapters of Matthew are all about introducing Jesus. And we come to the first teaching ministry of Jesus in Matthew 5, which will be in just a couple of weeks when we start into the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be there for quite some time. But Matthew's just simply introducing to us the Lord Jesus. And what he wants us to see in this little narrative that we're looking at today is that when it comes to temptation, there is no one better at dealing with it than Jesus. And if you're facing temptation today, if you've got something going in your life where you feel like you're, you've got to run straight to Jesus and learn from him because there's nobody better than him. Nobody better than the way Jesus handled temptation. 
So we're going to look at this temptation narrative today and learn what it means for us. So follow along as I read verse 1, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Well, this is, wow, I mean, this is an powerful, powerful text, a narrative that gives us real insight into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all the gospel writers, except John, include this story, include this narrative. Uh, Mark only gives it one verse. Luke treats it almost the same as Matthew treats it with one little caveat, which I'll share with you at the end. But all of them include it. And the reason why they do is because what we need to see about Jesus is that he handles temptation the right way. And what what I want to teach you this morning is how you can handle it the right way too. And the way we're going to do that is I'm going to walk you through this passage by looking at three basic principles. The first two, the first one will go quick. The middle one's kind of the, the, the meat of the sermon and the last one is sort of like a, just a little punchline to the whole thing. But these three things will help us get the big picture and then bring it right down to where we live our lives, okay? So here's the first thing. Verses one through three, if you're taking notes, what I want you to see when it comes to temptation is that we need to anticipate it. We need to anticipate temptation. Say the word anticipate. The problem is most of us are just not ready for temptation when it comes, so we're not prepared, and man, we get hit, and before we know it, we're engaged. So let me just give you three things about anticipation. Number one, temptation can come to anyone. So if you think it doesn't come to you, or it's not going to come to you, or you're so spiritual that you know, it's never going to happen, that's ridiculous. It comes to anyone. How do I know that? Well, if it came to Jesus, it can come to us. <laughs> so... Let's just get that perspective. And remind yourself, as you look at this, Jesus was tempted by the devil. Now, we're tempted by the devil, too, and his system of evil that lives, that's all around us in the world. But we're also tempted by our own flesh, which we'll see here in a few minutes. But what I want you to see in this first little section is that God allowed this to be part of Jesus' own preparation for ministry. Notice verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. Now, God doesn't tempt anyone, but God does allow temptation. Watch this. He allows temptation in our life to either build our character or reveal our character. (laughs) And you got to figure out which one is happening with you. I mean, when you face temptation, you're either being built up in your character because you go, that's not for me, or that 
I should be doing this over here and the temptation to not do it needs to be overcome. I need to do what God wants me to do. We need to recognize that God allows temptation in our lives to do one of two things, to build our character or to reveal our character. Because when we fall to temptation, then we realize how weak we really are, right? We realize that uh, we need the Spirit of God every day in our lives. And so God is going to use all this stuff to help us to, to grow in our character in Christ or to show us the lack of our character and the need for God's grace to do some work in our hearts. So if Jesus was tempted by the devil, we can be assured we'll be tempted too. Anyone can come under temptation. Number two, temptation can come at any time. Any time. It might happen this afternoon, might happen right now as you're sitting here. There could be temptation, thoughts of temptation in our hearts. Uh, you might be tempted to sleep in the next 20 minutes. Please don't. Um, you might be tempted to leave early. Don't. I could go on. There's things that we could be tempted about right here, right now, or maybe later today or tomorrow. The problem is we always think we're going to know when temptation comes, but the reality is it can come any time. Jesus' temptation came on the heels of his baptism and at the outset of his ministry. So I've written in my notes, temptation come at any time, but most notably at the end or beginning of something special in our lives. That's where Satan really loves to do his work. I've found that out in my life. Any of you found that out? I mean, I remember coming back from camp as a high schooler. Oh, man, I'm excited. Things are great. And you come home and everything is blown up, you know. Or you got, you know, you're just on the high wave of something. And then, boom, temptation hits. Your guard is down and you fall. That's just common. The temptation comes at any time, but it, it seems to come on the heels or, the, the, uh, or following something uh, or, or preceding something very special. Listen, Jesus' temptation came on the heels of his baptism. And right then and there, the Spirit of God leads him out to be tempted by the devil. I've written down that we should anticipate spiritual attack at any time, but particularly when something special has or will soon happen. I think of those baptismal candidates last week. I heard they were amazing. The stories were amazing. I'm looking forward to, if I can, watch some of those. I saw the message, heard the message, fantastic message. If you weren't here last week, you need to download it. That's a great part of having the internet and availability to just log in. I listened to Danny's message last week when I was in Cambodia. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So, but why is it, why is it that when we have amazing things happen, so I'm talking about baptismal candidates, you probably, some of you probably, you baptismal candidates, some of you probably had the worst week of your life this last week. Because you were like, yes, I'm all in for Christ. And the devil goes, perfect, bullseye. Wait till I see what I do with you. I'm gonna chop you up and spit you out for lunch. That's what the devil loves to find us in moments of great euphoria because we're not as protected. We are vulnerable. We are emotionally vulnerable in those kinds of times. Um, so we should expect at any time it can come uh, and just like with Jesus. Now here's a third thing. Temptation can come not only to anyone at any time, but anywhere. And most particularly in the lonely places of our lives. Now I'm... I'm sermonizing here. So Jesus was out in the desert, and I look at that, and I say, wow, that's the desert. I mean, have you ever lived in the desert? Well, probably physically, no, unless you're from Palm Desert or one of those kind of places. The desert is an arid, dry, 
terrible place to live. But all, when I ask the question, some of you go, yeah, I'm in a desert right now. My marriage is a desert. My family's a desert. My job's a desert. My career path is a desert. My personal life is a desert. I'm in the desert. And it's in those times that Satan loves to come to us and, and draw us away. Maybe you're going through a divorce, your business, whatever it is, You've got situations going on in your life and you need to know and be aware. You need to anticipate that if you're in a desert, this is a very uh, vulnerable time where the enemy can come and do his work in our lives. We've always found it interesting, kids going away to college, you know. They're raising the church, love Jesus, all excited, boom, they take off to college First semester, they're out of fellowship. They don't have a church that they're attending. And so they kind of, all of a sudden, they've got some new friends and the party on Friday night and go to the game and all this stuff. And pretty soon, there's a little bit of, a little bit of whittling down. There's not as much conviction. Bible goes into, this, into the locker. There's not a whole lot of focus on spiritual things. Come home at Thanksgiving. Ah, oh, they've kind of lost a little of that vibrancy. Go back, come back at Christmas. Eh, it's just kind of a lot of parties. Come back after their first year of college. Many college students absolutely tank their first year away from the church, away from God's people, because they just haven't anticipated that this would be a desert experience in many ways. I don't know where you are in your life today. I don't know what's going on in your life today, but I guarantee it, if you're in a desert experience you're in a place where the devil loves to come to you and bring things into your life, temptations that you maybe never dreamed possible that will just take you away. Be careful. So, temptation can come to anyone, it can come at any time, and it can come anywhere, and that's all about the idea of anticipating it. Which brings us to the next thing. And that we need to be aware of Satan's strategies and what to do when we're confronted by them. Say the word aware. I want to talk about three strategies that Satan dealt with Jesus about. And let me just say as we jump into this quick little part, that none of us are ever going to have the temptations that Jesus had. None of us. You're never going to be tempted to make bread out of stones. Ever. (laughs) You're never going to be tempted to jump off some giant building to prove that God is watching over you. You won't be tempted that way. If, if you ever get that kind of temptation, that is just a purely satanic desire to murder you because there would be no way God would be obligated to save you. Um, no way will Satan ever come to you and say, if you just bow down, I'm gonna give you everything. The universe is gonna be yours. <laughs> You're never gonna have that temptation. <laughs> These are all unique to Jesus. But what we can learn from these temptations are the strategies that that Satan uses. And these strategies he uses on us too. I'm gonna show you them, okay? So if you're taking notes, the first strategy is to tempt us to go after something that isn't consistent with God's word or our relationship to him. Uh, If you're taking notes, I've written in my notes, uh, just write this little phrase, take it now. Uh, That's a way that I remember this kind of strategy. The tempter comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, verse three. Notice the pitch he uses. It's, It's found in this little word, if. 
Little word, but, but big meaning. Now, now, be clear, Satan is not questioning Jesus' deity if you're the son of God. He doesn't want Jesus to, to question his deity. He knows he's God. He's suggesting that if he is God, what is he doing hungry? He's the son of God. Well, Jesus has been out preparing himself 40 days and 40 nights. He's been communing with his heavenly father. He's in total alignment with what God wants in his life. And he's being nurtured in the word of God. And Satan comes along and says, you shouldn't be in this condition. You should not be hungry. The son of man and the son of God should deserve far more than this. Any sin in being hungry? Of course not. Any sin in wanting to satisfy your appetite? Not at all. Could Jesus make bread out of stones anytime he wanted? Absolutely. So what's the temptation? The temptation is for Jesus to not trust his father to provide for his needs when he is hungry. Jesus purposefully fasted and prayed. You know when you fast and pray, you're gonna get hungry. Jesus did it for 40 days and 40 nights. I can't go 40 minutes without getting hungry. It's likely that we would be hungry if we chose to fast and prepare. And Satan, knowing this, comes to Jesus and says, why don't you just do what you can do for yourself right now because you can do it. You're the son of God. It's a very common strategy of Satan in so many of our lives. He works off the premise that if there's something going on in your life that doesn't seem right for you, you should fix it right now. It's like people that have problems with their credit cards and they're at the store and they, they think to themselves, hey, I make a pretty good living. You know, I, I should get that flat screen or whatever. The new curved model with the 3D dimensions. I should get that. I mean, I, I mean I'm, a, I'm a provider. The problem is to do that, you're gonna spend more than you're making this month. But it's okay because you can put it on credit and you won't see it for another 30 days. And then between that time, there's more things that come up. And some of us, I'm being a little silly here, but there are some of us have huge credit card problems. We've got debt that we will never, ever be able to pay off in the monthly installment plan. And we are stuck and it's terrible. And that's because we fall into this temptation. You deserve, you deserve a better experience. And is not all advertising the idea of, hey, come on, don't you deserve this? Of course. Oh, that's just advertising. Let's think about something. Think about young married men who feel they deserve to satisfy their sexual appetite before marriage. And this is true of young unmarried women too. And in our culture, you don't bat an eye anymore. People sleep together. They're outside of marriage. It's no big deal. I mean, it's the day we're living in. It is a big deal to God. And for Christ followers, it's a huge thing to keep your bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit and to honor God with your body and to not defraud your brother. And the Bible talks much about this, but in our culture, everything is fine. And so Satan comes to us and he says to us, look, you know, you deserve this. You have a hungry appetite, you should satisfy it. Or what about the marriage that's gotten a little dry it's not going so well. There's a lot of emptiness and lost in the process. And, uh, and so the person thinks to themselves, you know, I deserve to be happier. I mean, after all, there's that verse in the Bible that says, be happy, for I, the Lord your God, am happy, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, that's not the verse. 
What does it say? It says, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, that's a quotation from the book of, of Leviticus, chapters 11 and 19 and 20. God says, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Not be happy, but Satan comes along and says, don't you deserve to be happy? Don't you deserve to have the life that you always wanted? Maybe God has a different life for you. Maybe a life far more fulfilling and far more meaningful than simply grabbing the pleasures that come along. Well, I could go on and you could probably fill in the blanks on lots of things in your own life where you fall into temptation simply because you allowed the voice to go against what is consistent with the word of God and what you know about your relationship with God. And so you just kind of opt out of that and you go that way. Now, by the way, I said a minute ago, temptation not only comes from the devil, but it also comes from inside. Let's look at James, all right? The writer of James, James chapter one, verses 15 and 16 says, let's read it out loud together, 14 and 15 rather, ready? But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Wow. So that, that means that sometimes we can't say the devil made me do this or the temptation was there. It's just because our flesh is saying, do it now, buy it now, get it now, satisfy yourself now. That's why the, uh, the apostle John said, don't love the things in the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life is not from God, but is of the world. And so there's this constant tension in all of our lives to satisfy ourselves. So when we're tempted this way, well, how did Jesus respond to it? Jesus responded by saying, look at verse, uh, back to Matthew chapter four, verse four, man, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So when we're tempted this way to just grab it now, we need to affirm that the true satisfaction comes from knowing and obeying God's word. Know it and obey it. Know it and do it. Um, this struck me as I was studying this passage. I had never seen that little word every like I saw it this time, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That means I need to know everything in this book. Wow, do you know everything in this book? I don't. I mean, I've read through the Bible several times, but I certainly don't know it enough to do it all the time. I'll tell you this, I know a lot more than I'm doing. How about you? I mean, we... That's our biggest struggle. It's not really knowing more. It's doing what we already know. <laughs> Nevertheless, Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. In other words, not by the satisfaction of my fleshly desires, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You remember when Jesus was going through Samaria in John chapter four, and he's talking to that woman at the well, and the disciples come back from getting some food in town. They want Jesus to eat so they can eat. And they say, Jesus... Why aren't you hungry, basically? And they, Jesus says, I have food that you know nothing about. What? Who got him some food? Who got the lunch? <laughs> he says, my food is to do the will of my Father. So when you think about that, you know, I'm sure the disciples go, ooh, that's a little different. Jesus has just spent 40 days being nurtured in his relationship with God, his Father, while he's on earth in this state of <laughs> the second person of the Trinity coming to earth as a man and living in total dependency on his heavenly father, just like he calls us to, 
And he has just spent 40 days being nourished. And he is so full of his heavenly father's love that when Satan comes to him and says, why don't you just make some stones out of bread? Yes, I'm hungry, but no, I'm gonna trust God for my provision. Wow. I could use a little bit that more, more in my life. How about you? A little bit more sustaining power and grace in the word of God for my life. So I say when the temptations come, I don't need that. I would rather have this. I would rather know that I'm walking in God's will. I'd rather have the assurance that what I'm doing in my life pleases my God than to feel like I've, you know, walked away. Even if it was just for a moment. So that's the first thing. Here's the second strategy. It comes to us in verses five and six. Another common strategy is to tempt us to, uh, to put God in some kind of test in, in some attempt to prove something about ourselves or others or prove something to ourselves or others. Um, it was believed in Jesus' day that Messiah's arrival would first be at the temple. You say, really? How do you know that? If you're in Matthew, which you should be, go back about three pages to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and let's look at what Malachi said in verse one of chapter three. Prophet Malachi. This is five centuries before the birth of Christ. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me, the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, the Jewish people were waiting. Oh, he's going to come to the temple. That's where he's going to make his glorious appearance, at the temple. <laughs> when Jesus came to the temple, he was pushing tables over and cracking whips and telling people to get out because they'd made his father's house into a den of thieves. That didn't gain a whole lot of points with the religious leaders of that day. But the Jewish people were waiting. They were anticipating for the Messiah to come to the temple. In fact, the Jewish Midrash, which is the commentary of Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, went even further and suggested that when Messiah arrived, he would prove himself by leaping from the pinnacle of the temple. I've stood in Jerusalem. I know where the original temple stood there on Temple Mount. Scholars tell us that from the pinnacle of the temple down to the base of the Kidron Valley, it would have been about 300 feet. And had Jesus walked up to the pinnacle of the temple and simply stepped off, knowing that his ministry was still in front of him and his ministry was cast in stone from his heavenly father to come and to be the redeemer of the world, God would have had to rescue him to fulfill his ministry. And Satan, knowing this from the prophecy of Psalm 91 that he quotes, and by the way, let's stop there for a minute. Isn't it interesting that Satan knows the Bible too? He quotes scripture to the Son of God. If he knows scripture, how much more should we know scripture? Because he's gonna use it to twist and to get his, his thoughts sometimes into our brain. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But let's go back. So, so Jesus could jump off the temple and obligate God to save him. He would have done the little Mary Poppins thing and stopped right before he crashed and floated down. He would have been like Iron Man. <laughs> And, and said, I'm here. And everyone said, that's the Messiah. They would have all been ready to embrace him as Messiah. Oh, but the problem is, there was a lot more to come between 
that moment and the moment of the cross and then ultimately the cross and the resurrection, none of that would have happened. And for Messiah to be Messiah, Messiah had to also show that he was the suffering servant, Isaiah 45 through 53, and that he was coming not just to set up his earthly kingdom, but to be the savior of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. And so this was, in Satan's mind, the way that he could somehow prove or make God prove that he was who he said he was. Well, when I experience... We may not have this exact, we'll never have this exact experience, but I'll tell you how Satan uses this in our life. Have you ever make those weird deals with God? Ever do that? Like, God, I know this is really not consistent with your character, but, you know, I feel like I should do this. So, Lord, if you don't want me to do this, even though I know you don't want me to, if you don't want me to do this, then, Lord, make the phone ring in the next, let's give it a minute, and... And I'll take that as a sign. 40 seconds, 50 seconds, a minute goes by. Yes, okay. Okay, Lord, I'm taking that as a sign that I'm, you're okay with me doing this. Now, we, we chuckle because that's a ridiculous thing to say to God, but all of us have said ridiculous things to God. Things that we knew was not in line with God's character for our lives and not in line with his word, but we wanted to strike a deal. We wanted to make God prove something to us or prove something to others. I've heard people say things like this. Uh, You know, if you ask me to pray for you, I'll heal you. God will heal you if you ask me, if you ask me to pray for you. There are people that will come on our television screen saying that to us. Um, there are lots of people that will say, you know, you do, and what, what they're doing is they're actually obligating to God to do something that he doesn't obligate himself to do. And then when God doesn't do it, do it, what happens? It's just carnage and wreckage. People say, well, you're a fake and God's a fake and God doesn't do this and you told me and it's a mess. There's messes all over the place because people are obligating God to do things, watch this, to bail us out of our stupidity. We need to remember not to test the Lord by doing something foolish, hoping he will bail us out. Remember I said how Satan uses God's word? That's the MO of so many false teachers in this world. Just sprinkle some of God's word in. Remember Jim Jones? Some of you that back in the 70s, he used the word of God. How about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? Yep, used the word of God. How about Mary Baker Eddy? Christian Science. Yeah, used the word of God. How about James Rutherford of the Watchtower Society? Yep, use the word of God. How about, how about Joseph Smith of the Latter-day Saints? Yep, use the word of God. It is his ploy to use the word of God, mixed just enough into where we say, wow, that makes sense. People sprinkle in scripture and stuff, tell you to do this, tell you to live, tell you to send your money because they've got some kind of power. You need seed money to get the blessing in your life. Just send it to me. And they'll give you a scripture for it too. Oh, scripture, Bible. Satan knows the Bible. And he'll tell you scriptures to get you off of what you know is true of God's character and what you know is true of God's word. Hmm. Well, that takes some discernment, doesn't it? So we need the word of God and lots of doses of it all the time. Here's a common strategy, a third one that I see in verses eight through 10. And that is when he tempts us to take a shortcut when committing to do God's will. Verse eight, he shows all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he says, just this once, Jesus, bow down and worship me. 
this, this tips the hat to a little bit of Satan's narcissistic ways. I mean, Satan just wants this one moment where he has the Son of God bow down to him and worship him. That's what he wanted when he was with God in heaven. Remember when he tried to get all the angels to come? He wanted to be like the Most High. He's this narcissist. Primo, ultimate narcissist. And here's what he's doing. He's saying, Jesus, I'll give you what's rightfully yours if you'll just bow down and worship me once. He knows that all of this belongs to Jesus and will belong to Jesus, but in his incarnated state, when Jesus humbled himself and became a man, he is not given the kingdom. In the book of Revelation, Revelation eleven fifteen, during the great tribulation, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, and the voices in heaven say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. All of this would be Christ, just not now. Satan says, I'll give it to you now. How about now? How about now? How many lies have we fallen to because he says, you can have it now. Don't wait. Have it now. You can arrive at where God wants you to be by going around what God requires. Oh, for Jesus, this was absolutely intolerable because Jesus knew that what was before him was the cross, his passion, his suffering, and none of the kingdom would come without that. In the same way people tell us today, you can have Christianity without the cross. You can have the life of Christ. You can be a Christian, not surrender your life to Jesus. That's not Christianity. That's not the Bible. Satan is constantly trying to tempt us to follow a Jesus. That's why Eastern mysticism is really big right now, even among Christians. Because they want, they want a Christianity that, that is free from surrender, free from dying to self, free from the obligation of serving an almighty sovereign God. We want to be our own lords, and we want to say we're Christians. And Satan says, you can do it now. Well, that's a lie, and he's always been a liar. And I'm glad the Bible points it out right here, because Jesus says, he says, away from me, Satan, for it is written here, how about this one? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. How about that one, Satan? What the Bible says is worship the Lord. So when we're tempted this way to go around God's plan, to shortcut God's plan, to get what we will ultimately get in life in terms of what God has for us, but to wait for God to give it to us in his way, watch this, we need to remain surrendered to worship and serve the one true God. That's it. Verse 10. And by the way, it's what James said, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will what? He will flee from you. What happens when Jesus says this? Verse 11, then the devil what? What happened? The devil left him. You want to get the devil off your back? <laughs> Declare your allegiance to Christ and follow him. Now, you're not going to get him off your back forever, but you'll do in that moment. You want to put him to run? Surrender your life to Christ and worship him, you'll get rid of the devil in your life. People come to me as a pastor, they say, oh, I just have so much oppression, I just don't know what I'm gonna do. Uh, well, are you submitted to Christ? Well, oh, I got these things, I'm so tough. Listen, it's so simple. 
Submit your life to Jesus and worship him and let the devil deal with that. Kick the devil in the face with worshiping Christ. And I, you know, I shouldn't even say that because it sounds so pompous. Like, who am I? I'm a worm. I mean, I have no strength of my own. I, you know, I don't know. I've been listening to, <laughs> Daryl Mansfield has a song that talks about kicking the devil in the face. And that just popped into my head right there. <laughs> but it, it sounds a little pompous, but the point is, if you really want to deal with satanic issues in your life, temptations, you just need to surrender to Jesus. It's so simple. And that's where some of us need to start today. By the way, that's the last thing here. So, so we need to anticipate, we need to be aware, and the last thing, we need assurance that it's just worth it to not give in. I love verse 11. The devil left him, and angels came and attended him. What do you think the angels did to attend him? <laughs> I think they brought him some bread. <laughs> Lots of bread. I don't know. But I know in that moment, our Lord Jesus was filled and satisfied with the knowledge that he did not surrender, but kept his eyes where they needed to be. And that's why the Bible says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. That's why we come to Jesus. Let's pray.